Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We just prayed and now we're going to study Matthew chapter 2. But before we do, we're going to do a quick review, hopefully quick, of chapter 1. Um, we've said, just as when we studied the Gospel of John, we kept repeating this theme, and it's true for Matthew or any of the Gospels. The question this Gospel is ask, answering is, who is Jesus really? It is the key question. Who do you say that I am? Jesus says to his disciples. Jesus says to the Pharisees, his enemies, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? That speaks to his descendancy, uh, his um, ancestry, I should say, to um, genealogy, if you will. Chapter one of Matthew is a genealogy uh, of Jesus Christ. There are um, two of the man, Jesus. I'm saying that carefully. One is in Luke. That is the genealogy of Mary, his mother. This genealogy is of Joseph, his legal, although not biological, father. <clears throat> At first glance, it starts in Abraham. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience to prove to them Jesus is the Christ, meaning Messiah, the king from the line of David, the king of the Jews, and that he is fully God. To do that, Matthew gives us the genealogy of what the Jews would consider his legal father, Joseph. So it's a big, long list of what looks like boring names. It's really not as boring as it looks. But as I said last week, all the way through verse 16, you ought to be thankful that that's there because it takes the place of once upon a time there was a which means it's a fairy tale. This is real history. The Jews kept really um, copious records of genealogies. So 1 through 16, all those names comes all the way down to the husband of Mary, which is Joseph, uh, of whom was born Jesus, who's called the Messiah. So he has proved so far that Jesus Christ is fully human. He's a man. And he comes through the line of David. You see that in his genealogy um, right in the middle of verse 6. Jesse, the father of King David. To be a king of the Jews, you had to come through the line of David. It turns out Jesus is in that line, both sides of the family. Mary is also a descendant of David through a different branch of the family where it branches off. And Matthew is a uh, descendant of David as well. So... Starting in verse 18, it may not look like it, but this is a second genealogy. We said there's two genealogies for the man, Jesus Christ. The one in Luke is Mary's genealogy. The one in Matthew is Joseph's genealogy. But now this may not look like a genealogy, but look at verses 18 through 25. I'm reviewing chapter 1 of Matthew. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. So he, by the way, Matthew gives a very abbreviated version of the birth of Christ. You all know the story, right? Because Christmas carols and Christmas cards and the Bible. But I'll just tell you briefly, what's not in Matthew is the angel's visit to Mary, telling her what's going on. Joseph alludes to it, but he doesn't talk about Gabriel into that. Mary's visit to Elizabeth, who's the mother of John the Baptist, that's left out of Matthew. Um, the whole census and how Joseph and Mary from Nazareth end up way down south in 
Bethlehem at the exact right time for the baby to be born. Um, there's no room in the inn, the shepherds, you know, all of that. That's all in Luke, not in Matthew. Matthew now wants to give you the other genealogy. He's proven that he's a man and that he's in the line of David, and he's um, eligible at least for being king of the Jews. But the Messiah has to be uh, God and man. I'll show you in a second. So starting in verse 18, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph before they came together, meaning there was no sexual contact. She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. That's all he says about it. In Luke, you get the detail. An angel wakes Mary up and says, you're going to have a child. And she says, how can this be? I don't, I haven't known a man. And there's that verse we read last week that has the whole Trinity in it. In any case, um, the child will be through the Holy Spirit. You know the Trinity doctrine, that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, if the child, the Father is in essence the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, then that is a God. God would have to result from that union. Um, Joseph is a righteous man. He hears she's pregnant. He doesn't know about the Holy Spirit thing yet. He's going to divorce her quietly. Remember that last week in verse 19? But in verse 20, an angel appears at to Joseph in a dream and says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. What's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There it is again. Has to be a God, man type of child. You'll give birth to a son. You're going to name him, verse 21, Jesus, Yeshua, because that means Jehovah or God is salvation because he will save his people from their sins. First time in Matthew, we learn the mission of Jesus. I'm fond of saying, yes, there's incredible um, speeches and sermons and teaching that Jesus does. It's not the main reason he came. Yes, there's incredible miracles of control over nature and healing. Not the main reason he came. Matthew knows the main reason he came. He will save his people from their sins. In a strict context, this does not just mean Jews, his people, the Jews. Does it mean them? It does. Most Jews didn't and don't believe in Jesus. But listen, this is the first place in Matthew where you're mentioned. You're part of his people, aren't you? So am I. So it's more than Jews. Matthew starts his gospel with this idea. He ends it in Matthew 28 with, go therefore into all the world, make disciples of Jews? No, of all nations. It's a global religion. It is not just for the Jews. Global salvation. Matthew loves to say in verse 22, when something fulfills what the Lord had said through the prophet, and he quotes the Old Testament, uh, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they'll call his name, what? Emmanuel, which means who's with us? God's with us. So, he, this is, in a sense, a second genealogy, not for the human Jesus, for the Christ, the Son of God, who existed forever in the past. I'll show you that before we're done tonight as well. So Joseph, credit to him, when he woke up, he took two weeks to think it over. Wrong. He in instantly obeyed, took Mary home, they had the wedding, and what have you. Now we're coming into verse 1 of chapter 
2. So we know that he's a king by lineage through David, but chapter 2 is going to show you more why he is the king of the Jews. Because he is adored as a king in chapter 2. He is feared as a king by Herod, we'll see as well in this chapter. I want you to notice there are, I don't know how many there are, at least a dozen, it could be two dozen contrasts in this chapter. I'll point out some as we go. So that I know that you're awake, say amen. Amen. Good one. Those of you on Zoom, welcome. So I know you're awake, wave or say amen. I see your amen sign there. Great. Um, most of you wisely are turning your screens off so we don't see you like this. Okay, there's always a few of those, you know. I keep my audiences riveted, right? Okay, chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. And we have come to worship him. Did you catch that? Remember, Matthew's contention is he's fully God, but he's fully man. Here comes a strange group of guys. If you've seen Christmas cards or you've heard the song, We Three Kings, they aren't kings, first of all, of Orient are East, right? They came from the East. The only reason people think there's three, and it doesn't say there's three, is because there's three gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. That's the theory. Nobody knows how many there were, so we're going to talk about these guys. Um, but f first of all, uh, we need to talk about the fact that the word magi is where we get the word magic. It's also where we get the word magistrate. <clears throat> these guys were... Um, go, they go back to the time of Daniel and before. It's thought that they are from uh, Babylon area. They're Medes, um, if you will, from the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, let's see, do we want to do that now? No, we're going to wait on that. Okay, Magi. So they're from the tribe, uh, a tribe from the Medes. They have a very high rank. They're wealthy. They're powerful. They're not kings, though. There could have been 10 magi, we don't know. However many there were, they did not come alone. There would be a whole entourage, including servants, others with them, and a small army. So this is a huge group of weird people that aren't Jews showing up in Jerusalem. So the whole town, the whole city of Jerusalem would quickly hear, did you see the visitors? Boy, they dress weird, don't they? Yeah, tourists, you know, kind of thing. So I'll show you that everybody knows that they're uh, in town kind of thing. These guys were experts in astronomy, the study of the stars, the heavens, and all that. Even as long ago as a couple thousand years ago, even more than that, some on planet earth had plotted the stars and knew where everything was they were already navigating via stars when they were on ships in the ocean you want to see me get lost without gps i can't imagine let's see the stars i think we're going the right way honey and we would end up you know way off course so they're experts in astronomy 
but they're also experts in magic arts, astrology. These are Gentiles. They're not Jews. Got the picture? Very strange that they're coming looking for the king of the Jews. Um, in Daniel 5.11, we find out that Daniel ends up, Vic is teaching Daniel in Sunday school. Uh, are, you, are you up to chapter 5? Oh, yeah. He's the chief of the Magi, but that's several centuries ago. What's your point, Joe? I think Daniel, many scholars think this, taught those Magi over in Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, all those different empires about the scriptures. He's always quoting scripture. I think he told them there's coming a king of Israel to be born. Um, we'll get to the star in a second, but there's scriptures that talk about the star. Um, let's see, what else do we want to talk about? Um, so I think it was passed down over the centuries. These guys were watching for the Messiah. The Jews, not so much. Uh, these guys are wise men, as we said. Uh, they would be, by the way, not on camels. Almost certainly they're on horses. Kind of interesting how the story changes, right? Uh, let's see. The traditional story is these guys show up at the Bethlehem stable and see the baby in the trough, right? In the manger. This is later. Jesus is at least a few months old, could be six months old, could be as old as a year and a half, almost two years old, a little toddler. But they're coming to find him. Joseph and Mary have, remember there was no room at the end, that's why they're in the stable, they give birth there. Eventually, they have a little house. I'll show you that the Magi don't come to the stable, they come to a house where they're living now, renting or something. Eventually, they're going to go to Egypt in this chapter, come back and end up in Nazareth. We'll get there, though. Um, let's see. Probably Persia, which is modern-day Iran. Keep in mind, for them in Persia, to come to Jerusalem is eight to 900 miles. It's a long distance nowadays, on horseback and slaves being servants on foot. It's a long journey to come to Jerusalem and then go to Bethlehem. Amazingly, the scribes and Pharisees, the teachers of the law they're about to talk to, are in Jerusalem, five miles away south is Bethlehem. Five miles versus, you see the contrast? That's amazing. They came eight or 900 miles seeking the Messiah. There's a lot of lessons here. We'll try to cover them as we go. The Roman historian Suetonius um, said that the idea of the uh, a king coming from Judea, from the Jews, who would rule the world, that idea had spread over the whole Orient. So these guys weren't the only ones who knew about it. There's Balaam's prophecy in the Old Testament that talks about a star coming out of Jacob. Uh, let's see. Go back to, ver to the scriptures again. Mm -hmm. So the Magi come from the east to Jerusalem, and they ask a question. Verse 2, wasting no time. Where they want a location, because they're expecting, it's not our Messiah, we're not Jewish. 
but he's the Messiah of the whole world. So in a sense, he is our Messiah, but we're coming to the Jews. Surely they will know. Where is he? And nobody has a clue. Where is he, verse 2? Where is the one who has been, notice, born king of the Jews? Doesn't say the one that will someday become king of the Jews. He has the right. God decreed it. He's the one, listen, born king of the Jews. You mean this big? Yes, I do. Why is that unusual? Because normally if I'm king and I'm getting up there in years and I've got four sons, usually my oldest son is the prince. They're all princes, but he's like the king of England, right? Kind of thing. He's got two sons. They're next in line. They're not king now. They're princes. This one is really weird. He's born king of the Jews. Keep in mind, they're going to talk to Herod, whose official title is king of the Jews. You think he's going to care about this? You bet he is. Where's the one born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Gentiles. This is an amazing thing. Um, You expect the Jews to be more interested, and they're certainly not. What's the star? Okay. First, I'll tell you all the wrong theories, in my opinion. Okay. It's so funny. Steve gave a sermon this Sunday. We started Genesis in this church, Genesis 1, about how a lot of people read the Bible and go, okay, now that's what it says. How can we find some science to back this up? That is so backwards. God is the author of science. So the scientist type people say, oh, they saw the star. The star led them eight or 900 miles to Jerusalem. It sounds like it sort of disappeared. They ask, where is he? You're going to see it's going to reappear and lead them right to the house. Okay, so the theories are, well, it's Jupiter and Saturn in conjunction, the two planets. It's a meteor, a supernova, a comet, Halley's Comet, all different ideas. But if it's a known predictable phenomenon of the planets crossing, and these guys would understand that, why travel all this way? It's something supernatural. Now, what's interesting is the star gives off light, right? Old Testament, there's a word in Hebrew called Shekinah. The Shekinah glory of God was the the bright light that shone forth from the presence of God. And when the Israelites left Israel, uh, left, sorry, Egypt, he guides them during the day with a pillar of fire that sort of lights up, uh, sorry, pillar of uh, smoke and cloud which sort of lights up, and then at night a pillar of fire, the Shekinah glory. Uh, Let's see. So Numbers 24, 17, a star shall come out of Jacob. Jacob is a synonym for Israel. A scepter, that means what a king would have, will rise out of Israel. Uh, It's called his star. Notice that it led others to him. Um, Let's see. So they're coming to worship these powerful, rich dudes a little baby, maybe nine months old, six months old, a year and a half. It's pretty amazing. Those of you that were raised Catholic, please notice they do not worship Mary, let alone Joseph. In fact, the gifts they're about to give are for him, the baby. Pretty amazing scene. So 
they ask, where is he who was born king of the Jews? That would get everyone's attention. Um, let's see, in the Greek of this verse, um, verse 2, NIV has, and they asked. Uh, literally, it reads, they were asking, and the tense of the verb is uh, ongoing action. They kept on asking everybody. Where's the one born king of the Jews? Where's the one born king of the Jews? And the word gets back, you better go see Herod, who is the king of the Jews. He'll know the answer. Where's the one born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. That's important because that's going to tell Herod about when the kid was born, when Jesus was born. We've come to worship him. This is an amazing thing. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. The word can mean agitated, angry, upset. Naturally, he is the king of the Jews, supposedly. Keep in mind, King Herod is not a Jew at all. He's an Edomite. He has no right to that role. Rome put him there because Rome's in control of Israel. And Rome said, you can have the title King of the Jews. Whoop-de-doo, go ahead and enjoy it. The Jews hate him. He was a tremendous builder. He started the rebuilding of the temple, but he was an unbelievably brutal, evil, jealous, uh, suspicious type guy. You'll see, in, starting in verse 3 and 4, opposition to Jesus comes right away um, from government and what have you. Herod took office, and he instantly disbanded the Sanhedrin, which was like the supreme court of the Jews. This, they would have the ability to self-rule, but especially, listen, capital punishment. Herod took that away. Why does that matter, Joe? Because Genesis 49.10 says, it's a prediction, it's a prophecy. The scepter shall not depart, the self-rule and especially uh, capital, the right to capital punishment. Somebody's done a crime, he deserves to be killed, we can make that decision. They lost that when Herod took office Listen, the scepter will not depart from Ju- Judah, nor, the, nor a lawgiver, until Shiloh comes. You say, who's that? It's one of the names for the Messiah in the Old Testament. Now listen to this. A scepter means the tribal staff, Mosaic law, capital punishment. That verse says that won't stop. The Jews will not lose the right to capital punishment until Messiah shows up. Okay, so historians write that the Jews, when they lost that right, um, there was unbelievable mourning uh, and sadness that happened in six or seven, we're not sure, AD. We lost the right to capital punishment and there's no Messiah. What they don't know is there's a little boy in Nazareth that's somewhere between the age of 10 and 14 who's growing up, the Messiah is on planet earth. They just didn't know it. When was Jesus born? You would think because of it's, it's 2023 this year, right? We count the years. They redid the whole calendar about Jesus. They guessed as to his year of birth being would be the year, not the year zero, but the year one, if you will. Turns out they were wrong. 
The two theories are he was born in 7 BC or 4 BC. There's good reasons for both. Um, so, yeah, Daniel's the chief of the Magi. We talked about that. Okay. Herod uh, slaughtered 300 court officers of the Jews. Herod murdered his wife, his wife's mother, his mother-in-law, his older brother, two of his own sons he murdered. Herod was so hated that right before he died, knowing that he was going to die and that everyone hated him and no one would mourn, to make sure that people mourned when he died, he had his army and guards go round up several hundred prominent Jewish guys and hold them on trumped up charges. And when I die, kill them all so that some people will be shedding tears when I died. The guy was just wicked and evil. You've heard of Herod Antipas, and there are other Herods down the line from him, his descendants. They're all pretty wicked. This guy, one of the most wicked. Okay, back to the text. We saw a star. We've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. It's a big city. Suburb five miles away is Bethlehem, very small town, less than a thousand people, Bethlehem. Many people in Jerusalem. The whole town is upset. They know about these visitors. They've been asking around. What they're worried about is this idea of the king of the Jews, but they're more worried, scholars say, about we know how much of a temper Herod has. When he hears king of the Jews' baby, he's liable to go postal, right? Bonkers. So he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Verse 4, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. These are the Jewish leaders. They would be the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, what's left of the Sadducees. These are, the scribes would be the ones that copied the text and taught the Old Testament to the Jews. The Pharisees would be the leaders of the Jewish religion. These guys are religious experts. They would memorize great portions of the scripture. He's asking the right people, right? If anybody's going to know about this supposed baby that's born, it would be them. Okay, so he gathers them excuse me, together. And he asks them a serious and weird question. See the end of verse four? He doesn't ask, where's a baby born that's supposed to be born king of the Jews? Notice the change of term. When's the Messiah, when's the Christ supposed to be born? Where was the Christ supposed to be born? Being not a Jew and not that familiar with the scriptures, he doesn't know. But it's common knowledge among the people, and because of the Bible, uh, Old Testament, and among these scholars, they're going to tell him. But notice that he knows and a little that the concept of a Messiah includes the king thing, right? So he asks where where the Messiah was to be born. Verse five. No hesitation. There's no. Let us go research it. Give us a week. We'll Google it and get back to you. They just say, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. This is what the prophet has written, verse 6. But you, 
Bethlehem and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you, out of Bethlehem, a really small, insignificant town will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So they just simply quote uh, Micah 5.2. I want you to keep your finger in Matthew and take a left. And you, you come to the Old Testament and you come to Malachi and then Zechariah. Keep going. Haggai, Zephaniah before ha that, and then Habakkuk and Nahum. And then you come to the little book of Micah. Do you see it? I'll give you a second to find it. From Matthew, about six books-ish to the left. Micah is where we're going. And that's they're going to quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But we're going to read the whole verse, and I'll show you that there's even more amazing stuff here. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Okay, there was two Bethlehems. There was one up north. That's how they distinguished the two of them. Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. That's where they stopped. Do you see what the rest of the sentence says? Whose origins, whose goings forth, are from old, from ancient times, which can be translated from eternity, meaning he's from eternity past. He's always existed. Second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the, the Word, existed in heaven forever with God. The man, Jesus, is born about 2,000 years ago. You with me so far? It's a little confusing. But notice that the scripture says, whoever this king's going to be, is gonna, his origins are from old, from ancient times. Now go back to Matthew again. Um, it's interesting that before Jesus' second coming in Matthew 24, there's supposed to be, wait for it, signs in the, in the heavens, right? Sun, the moon, the stars, kind of similar. There'll be cosmological, um, astronomical signs then as there were for his first coming, if you will. So the religious experts are right. They instantly quote Micah 5.2. Bethlehem is the place. I want you to notice that prophecy is not symbolic. Out of you, Bethlehem, well, what could that really mean? It means that little town of Bethlehem, right? There's going to be a ruler. What could that mean? A ruler, a king, the king of the universe, the king of kings, right? His goings forth are from eternity. What could that mean? It means literally he's always existed. So prophecy is not as complicated as we make it sometimes, I think. Uh, let's see. He's going to shepherd my people, Israel, Uh uh, another prophecy says. In any case, so King Herod gets the answer, Bethlehem, and uh, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Lost sheep, right? All those analogies. So this first meeting is a public meeting. The scholars that know way more than I do say there's two meetings of the Magi with Herod. They, the first meeting we just covered, now here comes the second meeting. Then, verse 7, Herod called the Magi secretly. Okay, maybe 
two in the morning, get him out of bed. We're going to have a little quiet meeting here. Uh, undercover. Called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. He wants to know if this kid's been born, is he nine years old? How long did it take you to go nine, eight to 900 miles? Did you leave immediately after the star or was it bad weather you were delayed? I want an idea. How old is this supposed usurper of my authority and my kingship? That's why he's asking the question. Uh, so he asks uh, the exact time the star appeared. It doesn't say, they may say, we think it was about a year and a half ago, or it was nine months ago or something. It took us a while to get packed up and get the entourage ready and the horses fed and whatever you do with horses. Anyway, he sent them, verse 8, to Bethlehem. He's going to order them around. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, and this is dripping with hypocrisy and sarcasm. Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and kill him. I mean, worship him. Oops, did I say? That's what he wants to do. You know the story. Find him and let me know exactly where he is on Google Maps, because I'm going to blow that house up. I'm going to make sure this kid never becomes king of the Jews. Isn't that interesting? This is the plan of God, right? Nothing can stop it. But men still try, don't they? Okay. Uh, do we want to do this now? Um, by the way, you learn in the Gospel of Luke that Mary and Joseph are from Nazareth up north in Galilee. God knows the prophecy is Bethlehem. How is he going to get them to Bethlehem? He could have just said, Joseph, get Mary to Bethlehem when it's almost time for her to give her. He doesn't do that. Do you know what he uses? A, a worldly government. Rome decides, let's have a census of all the Jews. Everybody go to your tribal, the main area where your people are from. They're both from the line of David. They have to go to Bethlehem. What a coincidence, right when the baby's being born. It's not a coincidence. You couldn't have stopped it. If Joseph got a flat tire and got arrested, he would have gotten out in time to get married to Bethlehem. You can't stop God's plans. Amen? Okay. Um, Bethlehem is where Jacob buried Rachel. Bethlehem is where Ruth met Boaz. Bethlehem is the city of David. Bethlehem, that's how you say it if you're Jewish, means house of bread. Bethel, house of God. Bethlehem means house of bread. Interestingly, Jesus says in John 6, I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. Apropos that he'd be born in the house of bread. In Arabic, I'm just throwing this out there, Beth Lachem means the house of flesh. God and man, maybe. I'm just throwing that out there at no extra charge to your credit cards. Um, let's see. But Herod in verse 7 and 8, I really want to worship this kid. Please go find him and tell me where he is. Okay, listen. Who's, who's been there? All the Jewish experts right? They know Bethlehem. It's five 
miles away. You would think somebody from the Jewish scribes and Pharisees would go, let's go check it out. It's probably nothing, but they don't even go five miles. These guys are so intent. They are, listen, seeking the Messiah. They're seeking Jesus at extreme cost of time, money, effort, right? Maybe even danger. They want to find him. And they're Gentiles. It's all the more strange, if you will. So verse 8, go search. As soon as you find him, report to me. Turns out they will find him and they will not report to him again because they kind of get the message from God again. Verse 9, after they had heard the king, Bethlehem, let's go, boys. They went on their way. So in faith, let's head toward Bethlehem. Where is Bethlehem? Five miles south from here. Let's go. They start going. There's no star. They heard the king. They went on their way. And in verse 9, the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Okay? In Greek, this can be translated, it stopped over the head of the child, which is where in art from the last 2,000 years, have you seen the baby Jesus with a halo around his head? That's where they get that. He's glowing with the Shekinah glory. Is that true? I don't think so, but maybe. In any case, this is no ordinary star that leads you to a specific house. I looked at the stars the last couple of nights when I was outside, and I thought, let's say that's the star. How would that star, I'm following it, lead me to a particular house? It almost sounds like, remember, you don't see this anymore, but when we were younger, so those of you that are my age or ish, at grand openings or in a Broadway and in the Hollywood days, they would have those lights that are this big that would be a searchlight that goes in a tube of light into the sky. Remember that? I picture this almost being that in reverse. There's a tube of light going 644 Elm Street. That's where he is, that little cottage, right? They know right where the house is. I don't know how. Some liberal scholars said, well, maybe they asked, knocked on doors. Do you know where the Joseph and Mary live? I don't know. I think supernaturally, God led them right to the house. I'm not trying to read too little into it or too much. So the star appears. Um, let's see, are we in verse nine? They went on the way. The star they had seen went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, verse 10, they high-fived. Okay, it doesn't say that, but that's what it means. They're so jazzed. They're so rejoicing. Okay, contrasts. The godly, holy, perfect king has been born. The evil guy in charge, the evil king who kills everybody, his sons, his mother, his sister. Contrast. The Jews who know the scriptures, they're indifferent. Eh, Bethlehem, Messiah, whatever. Indifferent. When it comes to Jesus, there's three reactions. Hatred, Herod. Indifference, the Jewish leaders. Eh. And those who can't stop until they find him. 
It's a God-given thing. The, the Magi are not that smart. They're smart. God's drawing them to this person. They know from Daniel centuries ago, it's been passed down. They won't stop until they find this guy, this baby. It's a pretty amazing thing. So uh, let's see, we already talked about that, but absolutely a supernatural thing. One commentary mentioned, and I, I think this is interesting. It doesn't say it was nighttime. Could have been during the day. And they still see the star and they still know where the house is. So uh, verse 10, I, I love that verse. They saw it and they were overjoyed. On, verse 11, on coming to the, there it is, house, not the stable, not the cave, not the manger. It's a house. It's later. He's still little, but he's not the newborn baby. On coming to the house, verse 11, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they come to the house. Imagine you're Joseph and Mary. You know this is no ordinary birth. Joseph gets told in a dream. Mary gets told by an angel, right? Mary gets confirmed, that whole story confirmed in Luke when she goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, who's uh, going to be the mother of John the Baptist. She's six months more pregnant than Mary is. And she confirms this is the ruler of Israel, that you're going to have the Messiah, blah, blah, blah. Mary and Joseph are home. It's a little baby. It's a normal baby, right? And they get, and Joseph looks out the window, and there's an entourage, an army. There's guys with weird hats on. Yes, can I help you? Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, kind of thing. Fuller brush, what do you want? We're here to worship the child. Say what? We're here to worship your child. We're from Medo-Persia, we're from Babylon area. Okay, come on in, all of you, right? They're just like looking at each other like, wow. So uh, on coming to the house, they saw, here comes a phrase you're going to hear again and again and again and again in this chapter, and it's weird. The child and his mother, wrong. In that culture, you, you say the mother and the child. You never say the child first. The mother's more important. Not in this case. Matthew wants you to know the child and his mother. Who's missing? Joseph. Insignificant, no offense, Joe. You're not the important one. I remind myself of that every day. They see the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down, proskuneo and proskuneo him, worshipped him. It's the idea of bowing down and kissing either the foot or the hand of a superior, of a king. But they're doing this to Gugu Gaga, a little nine-month-old, six-month-old, year-old, year-and-a-half, maybe two years old at the outside, kid. It's a pretty amazing scene. Um, they fall down and worship him. These guys are the real deal. What do we do at Christmas? I heard just this week on Christian radio, I'm going to get the statistic wrong, but it's approximately right, that among Christians who regularly attend church, 38% believe that the birth of Christ is the most important thing about 
Christmas. 38%. That's 62% that think that's not the most important thing about Christmas. What? What is? Giving, the spirit of giving. No, it's the birth of Christ, right? We are nowhere commanded to celebrate Christmas, by the way. Can we? Absolutely. As long as it's not about commercialism and the gifts and the trees, and it's more about the birth of our Savior. Um, and I've got a little analogy for you in a minute. Let's talk about the gifts. Uh, well, we'll at least introduce them, and then we'll talk more about them. Okay. It's common when you meet royalty in that culture, you don't come empty-handed. You bring gifts. And you don't bring a plastic, you know, flashlight or something stupid. You better bring a gift that's suitable for who you're meeting. They bring gold, which is the most valuable thing, the gift of royalty, proving that he is a king. He's treated as a king by these guys, and he's treated as a king by Herod, who hates him because he's a rival king. Gold, the gift of royalty. Frankincense. You know what incense is, right? Why frankincense? Invented by a guy named Frank. No, I made that up. Um, but believe it or not, the incense of Franks was brought to Europe by Frankish crusaders. I learned that this week. So it's a resin that is fragrant, especially when it's burned, but it can be used a, a bunch of different ways. Medicinally, from the Boswellia tree, soothing properties, they burned incense or frank incense. Uh, Jews and other religions believe that incense, when you burned it, it helped your prayers drift up to heaven. Um, incense was added to almost every offering in the Old Testament uh, temple. Incense is for God, not the people. In Ezekiel 16, 8, God calls it, God talking, my incense. So if gold is the gift of a king, incense is the gift of a priest. He's a prophet, priest, and king. Um, but it's also a gift uh, that you would give to divinity, meaning prayer offered to him. Um, let's see. So it is uh, fragrant, as we said. Okay, myrrh is the weird one. Arabic word uh, myrrh means bitter. Remember, Miriam means bitter. Miriam is the name, the real name for Mary. Uh, a bunch of Marys at the cross. Remember, Mary, Mary, and Mary. Bitter, bitter, bitter. It was a wound healer, an antiseptic, anti-inflammatory, a perfume, uh, but used mainly as an embalming fluid um, to keep the dead body from smelling bad. So the strange thing is gold, I get that, king, frankincense, maybe they know he's God. But imagine going up to the parents going, we have some gifts for your child, gold, frankincense, and oh, here's some embalming fluid for later. You might need what? It's odd, isn't it? It sort of speaks to the fact that he's also a man who will die. He'll save his people from his sins by dying himself. We'll continue this in a second. Let's take our two-minute break. There's cookies back there, and make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Those of you that are on Zoom, hang in. I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away.
All right, we are back in uh, Matthew chapter 2, looking at these gifts and all the contrasts that are in this chapter. Um, let's see. Who are the gifts for? Did you catch it? Uh, they bowed down and worshipped him in verse 11. They opened their treasures and presented who? Him, the baby. Obviously, the parents are going to be sort of have custody of the gifts. They're about, Joseph and Mary have to suddenly move to Egypt. They're going to need money. He can't get work right away. This will help them, right? The gold especially. So they worship him. They open their treasures. They give him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. At Christmas, in much of the world, we give each other gifts, right? It's a little strange. I know the giving Jesus was giving, so we're giving, but we're, Jesus gave vertically to us, right? We're giving horizontally to other people. Nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. I'll give you my address if you want to send me a gift. But um, the point is, have you ever thought, what can I get her or him for Christmas? What does he need? Let me ask you this. Have you ever thought, it's Christmas. What can I get Jesus? What do you get the, the Lord who has everything? You know what he wants? He wants you, your heart, your obedience, your worship, your love, your uh, absolute faith and, and alliance with him, doesn't he? That's what to get the king of kings who has everything. Um, the worship he deserves. Anyway, just thought I'd throw that in. Uh, and we talked about that. They give the gifts to him. Uh, interestingly, myrrh, back to myrrh, embalming stuff. When Jesus dies in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who lends Jesus his tomb for the weekend, um, they embalm the body with somewhere between 75 and 100 pounds of aloes and, wait for it, Myrrh, right? Uh, it's interesting that myrrh uh, gives off a sweet aroma only when it's crushed. Good. Wendy, you gets an A. It only gives off a sweet aroma when it's crushed. What's your point, Joe? Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. The gifts are for Jesus. They're not for Mary. They're not for Joseph. There's no worship of Mary. Catholics, take note. Okay, three different responses. I'm coming back to this. You tell somebody about Jesus. They scoff at it. They hate it. That's Herod. Which one are you? I have a feeling I know, or you wouldn't be here, right? Reaction number two, indifference. Eh, I, eh I, I don't really. Some people, you tell them, we had a guy working at our house today with his son. Uh, he'd been here there before. Second, Actually, third time I've met him. Every time I've told him, you really should come to church, Bible study. And there's people that go, oh, what church is it? Where do you, what do you guys believe? Where is it? This guy, it was like telling him, 
I've got a Tupperware party I'm hosting. I'd love it if you could come. He, that's how interested he was. Oh, yeah, whatever. Uh, guy about, he's about 60 and his son's about 35. Anyway, indifference. Eh. And then there's those who hear the word of God and they're excited. They seek, they spend money, they spend energy. They will not rest, these guys. You think if Herod had said to the Magi, there's no such thing, go home. Do you think they would have went home? No. So they sought him out at great cost and time. Notice one thing, though. Three reactions. Hostility, indifference, belief, worship, right? And they gave, didn't they? What's your point? There's really only two. I thought you said three. What about indifference? The indifferent, the Jewish leaders, end up, by the end of the gospel, where are they? Hostile. Crucify him. Remember that? They're not indifferent anymore, are they? So there's really only two. Tim Keller has a sermon he gave in the 90s called, about Jesus, it's, it's kind of harsh, called Crown Me or Kill Me. There's nothing really in between. You can blow him off and oh, I'm just kind of indifferent, but you're in a sense, crucify him, kill him kind of thing. These Pharisees knew the scriptures way more than the Magi did. What's the point? You can know the Bible and not know the Lord. You can just spout off Ephesians 2.14. You ever know those people that can just, wow, I'm jealous of that kind of memory. And yet, are they really worshiping, obeying, curious to go find out? The Jews had to go five miles and they didn't go. That's an astounding thing. But be doers of the word, not hearers only. James 1.22. Um, this is another one of those contrasts. Virtually every world government acts like Herod. They don't really promote. In our country, uh, and don't get me wrong, July 4th's coming. I'm, you won't meet a more patriotic person than me. And yet in our country, you can't say Jesus in school. God, Bible, you can, some places you can, but wow. One scholar wrote, too many people have been inoculated with a mild case of Christianity, so much so that they're immune to the real thing. Just enough Jesus to be unsaved. They're not really following him, but they know the basics. Are you seeking Jesus? Don't you love the saying, wise men still seek him? Amen? And not just at Christmas, all year round. Gentiles are the first to worship the king. It's an amazing thing. They come, Jesus comes to the Jew first, and then to the Gentiles. We already talked about that. Um, what if the Magi had admired the star from where they were, and that's it? Couldn't do it, could they? Do you know that when you came to Christ, you heard about it, and you might have been a little indifferent, but if you're truly saved... God was, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And whether you felt it or not, he was drawing you. For me, at the same time he was drawing me, he was also making me feel so guilty about sins I was committing. that was no longer fun, and I didn't like that. 
At the same time, he gave me an unbelievable curiosity about the Bible. It became suddenly the most interesting, which it is, book that there is. The, all evidence that you're being drawn. They're not satisfied just looking at it. They did something, got out of their comfort zone. They followed it. They persevered in their search. They weren't discouraged by hypocritical clergy, the Pharisees. They weren't discouraged. They saw through him. And they worshiped and they gave. And we lose them at this point in the story in a, in a few verses. We don't hear from them again. This is going to be one of my questions when I get to heaven. What happened to those dudes? They seem like believers, don't they? Maybe they lived long enough. Remember, he's little baby. Maybe they lived long enough until he started his ministry and they heard or the, somebody went to their country and they ended up believing. I don't know. But they did respond to the light they were given, didn't they? It's beautiful. Okay. More dreams. Back to the text. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay. Zoom. Are you guys doing okay? All right. Verse 11, they worshiped, saw the child with his mother Mary, opened the treasures, gave the gifts. Having been warned, verse 12, in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Gentiles are getting dreams from God. Don't go, that Herod guy's evil. Don't obey the ruler of this area. Now, Christianity does not teach civil disobedience per se. You know, the government says pay your taxes, stop at the stop sign, drive the speed limit. We don't say, oh, forget those laws. We are to obey the laws. Read Romans 13. However, when the government says, no, you can't go to church, no, which they did during COVID, you can't sing in church. Do you remember that here, some of you? We disobeyed that. We sang here without masks, I might add. <sighs> Hallelujah, <laughs> right? Hosanna. My point is, we're supposed to obey the laws of the country. Unless they say, turn in, you got 30 days to turn in your Bibles, we're going to burn them all. I'm not turning my Bible in. Go ahead and arrest me. You can't teach this Tuesday Bible study. Come and get me. Sorry. But otherwise, we're supposed to obey the laws of the country. Um, okay, so they're warned in a dream. Don't go back to him. Verse 12. They returned to their country by another route. They got on Google Maps and went, we can go around Jerusalem, and they went home another way. If you ask me, they went home rejoicing. We found him. I can't wait to hear what happens. I hope I live long enough to hear what this little guy's going to do. Pretty amazing thing. Verse 13, but what about Joseph, Mary, and Jesus? When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appealed, appeared to Joseph in a dream. Boy, a lot of these, aren't there? Between the angelic visits and the dreams. Now it's Joseph that gets a dream. Get up. Take the child and his mother. Do you see that again? Child before the mother. Incorrect. No, it's correct. He's the creator of the universe. He comes way before Mary. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Jealousy. 
right? What if Joseph says, we're not doing it. We're staying right here. We're standing our ground. I'm not chickening out. Let Herod come. Could Herod have killed Jesus? No way. No way. The spears would have disintegrated the, whatever they tried to do, right? Couldn't happen. When God says, I'm going to do this, guess what? It's going to happen. Even if it seems unbelievably unlikely. Now, Jerusalem is a big city, as we said. Um, and Bethlehem is somewhere between 600 and 1,000 people. That's it. Small town. Much smaller than Oakhurst, where I live. But how many kids under the age of two do you think there were? Scholars think 10 to 25 or so, 12 to a couple dozen, maybe at the most. I'm not minimizing the fact that kids, innocent babies, got slaughtered because of Herod's jealousy. But I'm saying sometimes in the movies, it was hundreds and hundreds of kids. Probably not. Although I'll show you why it might have been. Let's keep reading. Uh, Herod's going to seek the child to kill him. So he got up, verse 14, took the child and his mother during the night. Did you see that? You know what that is? Immediate obedience. Mary, get up. I just had a dream. We're leaving. When? Now. Pack a bag. We are so out of here. What? I'll explain on the way. Got up, took the child and his mother. There's the saying again, verse 14. During the night, meaning that night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, verse 15. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now he's quoting Hosea 11.1, 1, where Egypt is being called out of Egypt. It's, uh, I'm sorry, Israel is being called out of Egypt. It's a picture of this as well, that Jesus is going to be called back out of Egypt, back to his people. This is a protective measure that God does. Um, yeah. As we said, Herod is an evil guy. He's not afraid to murder anybody. Uh, murdered all kinds of his family members and what have you. So uh, they go to Egypt. This surprised me this week. Um, a lot of scholars think when, if I asked you on a test, how long were Joseph, Mary, and Joseph, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph in Egypt? I would have said years, okay? Turns out it could have been only months or about a year. Uh, kind of surprising, but they do go there. They've got the gold, frankincense, and myrrh that they can trade or use uh, to keep the family alive and for the journey and what have you. By the way, um, Egypt is about 800 miles, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 80 miles away. But Alexandria is 150 miles away, and Joe and Mary aren't on horses. No Uber. They're on foot, probably. He had the donkey for when she was giving birth. This is a while later. Maybe they have the donkey. It's going to take a while to get there. Alexandria is the main city they probably went to. Amazingly, by then, it's part of the Roman Empire, and there's a huge Jewish population there. So they could fit in there for the time that they're there. Um, those who want to be the king and the master of their own lives will always hate Jesus. 
I don't want to give up the power. That's Herod, right? The thing is, if it's you, you got to let that go and bow to the king of kings. Um, so let's keep reading. So they stay there till the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled that prophecy. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted, don't you love that? By the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity. The question is, what does that mean? How far are we going out from the little outskirts of this tiny little town? Maybe it could have been a lot more kids, who knows, who were two years and under, two years old and under, in accordance with the time he learned from the Magi. He's trying to guess. He doesn't need to kill the 12-year-old boys because this all happened in the last year and a half or so. Let's make it and round it up to two years. Find all the two-year-old boys and kill them all. Imagine you're in the army. You work for Herod. What he says, you salute and go, yes, sir. Go kill all the little two-year-old boys, two and under, babies, newborns. Ouch. How evil can people get? Well, we're seeing it in our culture, aren't we? Outwitted by the Magi and furious. I love it. So there's a mass murder that occurs. Then, verse 17, what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning. Rachel, which is the wife of Jacob, remember? She's representative of all the Jewish mothers here, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That happened back in the Babylonian captivity time before that when uh, Rachel is mourning, or Jews, mothers are mourning because the Babylonians have taken over Israel and they're taking, including Daniel, right, Vic, and a bunch of other young kids taking them away. This is worse. They're killing them here. Uh, little babies. Unbelievable. Um, the hatred of Jesus knows no bounds among unbelievers. Um, so that's Jeremiah 31, 15, by the way. Uh, we already talked about that. Ramah, by the way, is five miles north of Jerusalem. Bethlehem, five miles south of Jerusalem. Um, verse 19. After Herod died, and by the way, he died a horrible death being eaten by worms internally, which happened later in the book of Acts to one of his descendants. Just extreme pain and started to lose it mentally and what have you. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Another dream. Joseph is afraid to go to sleep. What are you going to tell me now? Go to New York City. No, I don't want to go there. Uh... If I forget, somebody remind me about New York City. Okay, let me finish the thought here. Uh, appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and he said, verse 20, get up, take the child and his mother, there it is again, the child's more important, and go to the land of Israel. Those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. He's saying, I protected you here. Meanwhile, I took care of business back home. They're dead now. Coast is clear, go on back. So he got up, took the child and his mother, there it is again, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Another wicked dictator who was actually inept and, and Rome had had it with him and, and ended up deposing him, kicking him out. 
Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. This is the sticks. This is the boondocks. Big city, Jerusalem. The country, Galilee. Later on, when Jesus is preaching and the apostles are mostly from Galilee, in Jerusalem, they all recognize, we can tell from your accent, you're from Galilee, aren't you? Because they sound like hicks, people in the sticks. If you have a southern accent, I'm not putting that down. I'm just doing it for fun here. Um, so they, they uh, where was I? There we go. And verse... 23, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So what was so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Before we get to the Nazarene, let me do the New York thing for you. Okay? <laughs> yeah, what about New York? When you come to Jesus, you don't just come to Jesus. What do you mean? Those guys in... Um, Babylon, Persia, Iran now. Look, there's a star. To come to Jesus, you have to leave where you are. If you're in New York City and I say, Ken, come to Santa Cruz, California. It is not necessary for me to say, leave New York and come to Santa Cruz. You can't stay in New York and come to Santa Cruz. In other words, there is a certain coming to Christ and a certain leaving of some things, habits, people, way of life, sin, cohorts in sin that you kind of have to leave behind. You leave some things behind. You, in a sense, what you feel like you're doing is um, sacrificing and everything you give up, God goes, that garbage? I got way better stuff for you than that. Okay, that was the New York thing. Okay, now Nazarene. This is a problematic verse. Oh, not that bad. What was said through the prophets, he would be called a Nazarene. Not in the Old Testament. What? No, there it is. He'll be called a Nazarene. I know. There's no prophecy where a prophet says the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. They never say that. Mistake? No. Couple different theories. First, let's deal with Galilee, which is sort of the area, and then Nazareth, the very small, nothing town. I'll come back to that. First of all, Galilee. In John 7.52, the Pharisees the experts in the Old Testament, say about Jesus, and uh, quote, 752 John, no, search and see, no prophet comes from Galilee. Jesus is supposed to be a prophet. He is prophet, priest, king. No prophet comes from Galilee. Are they right? No. Jonah from Galilee. Nahum from Galilee. Jesus from Galilee. Isaiah 9.1.2, in the future, he, God, will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It's almost like that star has dawned. Um, eventually, Jesus and his family moved to Capernaum, uh, which is in Galilee, away from Nazareth. Let's talk about Nazareth. 
I'm not going to name any towns or cities. I did this once and somebody got mad at me because they were from that place. But you know how there's certain towns or cities that everybody kind of looks down on or makes fun of or the people are dumb there. There was a lot of there's a lot of crime there. It's a, just a hellhole of a place to live. That was Nazareth. People always made fun of Nazareth. What's your point? In the book of John, one of the disciples says, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? You get the picture? It had a reputation for being a little podunk town that was just like, who would ever want to live there? But isn't that just like the humility of Jesus to pick that kind of a place to live? Notice he's not born as a king to royal parents in a palace. Born to poor parents in a feed trough, right? The whole point of Christmas is that God came down. Huge step downward. In 1964, there's a famous murder that occurred in New York City. This is the other New York story. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay. Those of you on Zoom, are you still awake? I don't see anyone sleeping. Okay, I see the amen sign. I see people waving. Okay, 1964, Kitty Genovese is walking home from work late at night in New York City. Picture the scene, street, apartments, buildings, you know, 10 stories up on both sides of the street. She's alone. A man comes up to her out of the shadows. Anybody know this story? Ever heard of Kitty Genovese? A few of you know and stabs her and she falls to the ground and yells help he stabbed me lights go on in apartments windows open people look down and no one came to help her the the stabber the, the stabber the murderer split and hid because she yelled and waited five minutes And when he saw nobody came, and she's on the ground bleeding, he came back to the body, robbed her, and stabbed her again and killed her. Why are you saying this, Joe? Because Jesus Christ and God the Father heard the cries of humanity, of injustice, of crime, of murder, of adultery, of sin, of stealing, of injustice, of child abuse, of a thousand other crimes, and said, help us. And God didn't just open the window and turn the light on and look and go, hmm. See, the people in those apartments said, I'm not going down there. That would be risking my life I don't even know her, Kitty Genovese, I think late 20s. God heard the cries for help, and he came down, not at the risk of injury or his life, but at the cost of his life. And he didn't say, I don't even know them. He said, those are my people. I can't stay here. I got to go down and help. That kind of love, that kind of grace, that kind of mercy, that kind of caring, if you understand it, will be the thing that melts your heart and makes you want to obey 
the King of Kings, who came down. And I mean down, not seven flights of stairs in the middle of the night in your pajamas, but he came way down from being the creator of the world, the second person of the Trinity, God, the word. He became a little baby in a food trough. That's Christmas. That's self-sacrifice. That's giving. On the cross, Easter, I know, better to say Resurrection Sunday. On Resurrection Sunday, on Passover, when he's crucified on Good Friday, he's giving his life in place of you and me. That's love. That is the kind of thing that motivates you to come to Jesus. Listen, I'm aware that a lot of people come to Jesus as fire insurance. I don't want to go to hell. I've heard about hell. I'm okay, Jesus, yeah. That's like somebody putting a gun to your head. You better believe if that's why you're here, you don't want to go to hell, that's great. But get to know Jesus like the Magi did. Seek him out. The more you do, you'll fall so in love with him, you'll forget about the hell thing, and you'll want to obey him just for who and what he is and what he did. Kitty Genovese died on the streets of New York because nobody came down. Jesus came down. All the way down. Read Philippians 2. Humility to the point of dying a criminal's death in our place. Okay. What about this Nazarene thing, Joe? You got off track. Yes, I know. I'm a little ADD. Okay. Some people think it means he was a Nazarite, which John the Baptist was, by the way. That was a vow of absolute um, consecration in number six to God. You leave your hair uncut. I'm working on it. You have no wine of any kind and no contact with anything dead. That's what a Nazarite vow was. For a time, you would let your hair grow. Um, unlikely. Um, but the best is that this is not a specific quote of one prophet where you could look it up, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, David, whoever, um, Jeremiah, whoever. Best, it is the summation of a bunch of scriptures. What do you mean? When you read Isaiah 53, you find out that the Messiah is going to be rejected, despised. He will be often spit upon and mocked and put down and ridiculed. And just like the town of Nazareth that always gets ridiculed, he'll be a Nazarene in that sense, that he will be despised. Uh, Christians in Acts 24.5 are called the sect of the Nazarenes. It's a derogatory term. We don't take it that way. It's a badge of honor for us, right? Okay, chapter three, we have time just to introduce it, but I think we covered uh, most of what we were supposed to. Okay, chapter three, there we go, um, is all about John the Baptist. What an interesting dude. I think if you were a member of society then, you might think he's a little weird. You might think he's a lot weird. Lives out in the desert. We're going to find out he wears camel hair. He eats grasshoppers and wild honey. He's a vegetarian. Um, in any case, uh, let's see. In those days, John the Baptist, chapter 3, verse 1, 
came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. So John the Baptist uh, is the forerunner of the Messiah. We're going to learn next week. I'm just introducing the chapter to you. Um, Zechariah and Elizabeth are his parents. Just like Jesus, John the Baptist has a supernatural birth. Because just like Abraham and Sarah, they are way, way John the Baptist's parents, way, way past the age of childbearing. They've never been able to have a child. It ain't happening. And God says to Zechariah, you're going to have a son. You're going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, blah, 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 this and that. And Zechariah, I don't want to go to Luke to read it, but Zechariah basically says, it sounds plausible. I'm just not that sure. He's not Joseph. Joseph hears God says, do ABC. And Joseph goes, let's go, Mary. A, B, and C. We're doing it right now. Zechariah has some doubts and God says, okay, just for that, you're going to not be able to speak until your son's born. You're supposed to name him John. God picks the name. Um, Elizabeth, Mary's relative, is pregnant suddenly, not from the Holy Spirit, but miraculously like Abraham and Sarah, they come together and they're able to have a child, Zacharias, who's a priest, by the way, and Elizabeth. Um, so we'll look at that next week. This is not the Apostle John. This is John the Baptist. Oh, you're so right. In two weeks, those of you that weren't here earlier, no Bible study next Tuesday because it's 4th of July and we can't afford fireworks. But in, but in two weeks, we will meet again. We're not going to meet next Tuesday, July 4th. We'll meet on July 11th. Let's pray and we'll get out of here, shall we? Lord, thank you for the gift you gave on Christmas. I know it wasn't uh, December 25th, probably. Whenever it was, you gave the greatest gift ever, your son. And unlike those neighbors of Katie Genovese, Jesus came down, way down. And we're forever grateful. We, we owe you everything, God. We owe Jesus Christ everything. A debt of gratitude we can never pay. But help us to give gifts to him because he's constantly given them to us. The gift of obedience, the gift of worship, the gift of our hearts and our true person, our purpose. May it be all according to your will and we give thanks to you. Help us to not have that hardened heart of Pharaoh, that indifference of the Pharisees and religious leaders. Help us to be magi, wise men who still seek diligently the Lord Jesus. And if we think, well, we've already found him, may we realize, God, that in your word, the depth of the knowledge of the Son of God is a thousand miles deep like an ocean. And we could never find the bottom, but help us to diligently keep seeking him. We love you, Father. We love you, Lord Jesus. Bless these truths. May they change the way we live. Thank you for being with us, God. And we pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. It's very important. And those of you on Zoom, thanks for being here. See you next time. God bless.